Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Stone and Tile Show, and I am your host, Dr. Fred. Uh, many of you have been sending me emails and calling me. I uh, want to know more about this uh, stone inspection class that I'm offering. Now, I just finished up a week-long stone inspection class, and I know it's a week long, and a lot of you who want to become stone and tile inspectors just can't seem to get away from your office for uh, for a week at a time. Uh, I understand that. I'm, I'm also in business, and I know what that's like. So what I have done is I've recorded the entire session, that is four solid days of lecture, and the fifth day is actually the test. Um, you're not going to get the test online here, but I am now offering this class as a study at home. So basically, you could sit in your underwear in front of your desktop and uh, take this class. Uh, the only thing the online class will not do is it will not allow you to see a live stone inspection. That's what our classes, our live classes are all about. Uh, and I plan on offering another one uh, in January coming up uh, in Las Vegas, uh, although I do need confirmation uh, in order to schedule that. So if anyone is interested, I will do another one in January. I only do these classes about once per year. So what you are about to listen to is the first 30 minutes, approximately 30 minutes of the show, of, of the, the actual class, uh, the first, very, very first day. Uh, if you would like more information on what's contained in the entire program, uh, feel free to send me an email at fhuston, that's F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com, that's G as in George, at gmail.com. So again, that's fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. Uh, you can always go over to my website, stoneforensics.com, or you can visit the stoneandtileschool.com, which will have a complete description of the class on there. Uh, this session is now available. It includes a complete manual, stone failure manual, as well as uh, the PowerPoint presentation, which is a self-guided PowerPoint presentation. Of course, the audio, which is uh, me lecturing for uh, four solid days. So there's probably over 20 hours of lecture in there. So, again, listening to it, you can listen to it at your leisure in little segments or, or whatever. All right, so I'm going to start playing the um, 30, first 30 minutes, and uh, that will end the show. So here we go, and everybody have a great day. And, again, if you have any questions, just feel free to uh, give me a holler. Okay, let's get started. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Ready to have some fun and learn a bunch of stuff? This is one um, one seminar that I love giving simply because it, it delves into a, a whole other avenue of stone and tile that few people actually get to experience. Um, you know, we're either restoration contractors, fabricators, installers, architects, engineers, and I equate what we're doing here kind of like being a doctor. And the reason being is that we have to know how things work. We've got to know why stone fails, why a tile installation fails. Uh, you're going to get calls constantly if you already don't on, uh, well, I got, I got sold a bunch of crap. I got sold poor quality stone. Well, you're going to learn here real shortly there is no such thing as poor quality stone. It doesn't exist. Is there a poor quality ceramic tile? Yes. As a matter of fact, there's a porcelain tile in there right now that was shipped to me from South Florida. They have to look at that. have some issues. And, I haven't even opened it yet. We'll actually open it up and take a look at it and see if we can figure out what's wrong. Uh, but when it comes to stone, there is no such thing. Uh, and you're going to learn that. You're going to learn check, some check. interesting new terminology that you might not know already as it applies to stone. And more importantly, you're going to know what an expert is. 
there's a lot of money to be made in this field. You know, for an example, and I'll tell you this right off the start: if you serve as an expert, okay, whether it's in a court of law, whether it's in an inspection, do not cut yourself short. And what I mean, don't do it cheap. Okay, my rate is $200 an hour. Okay, and that's what I would suggest you charge, anywhere from $150 to $200 an hour. Doctors now are getting up to $1,200 an hour for medical advice. And I'm going to go through later on in the, in the session how to do an engagement letter when an attorney calls you. Okay, We'll talk a little bit about depositions and what to say and what not to say in a deposition. I've got plenty of stories there, too, of some of my experiences with, with depositions uh, because that's where the money's being made. Working with insurance companies, we'll talk about marketing, Okay, how to market these services. And I guess the number one question I get all the time, well, Fred, if you're making so much money doing this and it's such a lucrative field for you, why are you teaching others how to do it? Okay, it doesn't make sense, right? And I'll be honest with you, when I first started doing this, I was reluctant. Then I discovered something. I discovered that I can't be everywhere at the same time. So I'll get a guy in New York City, for example, and I get a call from a homeowner that has a uh, maybe a $10,000 kitchen countertop, and they want me to come and inspect it. Well, for me to fly to New York from Florida, you're talking you know, at least three, 400 bucks. You're talking about my rate, and my rate is based on a minimum. So if I go do an inspection, my minimum inspection is going to be $1,600. You think that person is going to want to pay me, pay out a couple, couple grand to come inspect it? No. But I'd call Brian in New York City and say, Brian, there's a case for you up here. You know, go take a look at this. You charge your five, 600 bucks because you're right there. You've made good money and possibly more if it goes into a court, court situation. So that's why I'm doing it. Most of the jobs that I take now are large cases. I work with airports, I work with uh, school systems, uh, county governments, federal government type work. Uh, I do a lot, a lot of large cases. And some of my cases go on for years. You know, the San Diego airport one, for example, that went on for two or three years. And, and that was, I mean, that, that was a lucrative project for me. I made 80 grand on that project. There were 12 experts involved. <laughs> um, they had recreation experts. They had, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And I'll, I'll tell you the story later of how that developed. And, what the lawsuit was based on, which was basically just misinformation. There was nothing wrong with the or with the uh, with the stone, and they claimed it was poor quality stone. And you're going to you're going to see that. So let's first take a look at. Well, before I get into what an expert is, let me kind of outline what we're going to do uh, for the rest of the week. Today and tomorrow we'll be in here. Wednesday we're going to actually go in the field. We're going to look at some real life failures. I'll show you how to inspect them. Thursday we will wrap up. Why am I doing this? Thursday we will wrap up, and then uh, I'm going to give you the choice of either coming back on Friday morning to take the test, or we can stay on Thursday and take the test. I'll let you decide at the end of the, end of the class what you want what you want to do there. Um, so, what is a stone and tile expert? Uh, what type of things do you need to know in order to be an expert? First thing we're going to look at is well, I should say, the first thing an attorney is going to want to do is disqualify you as an expert. Okay. So what you need to do, and we'll go into this a little bit later, is develop what is called a CV. It's, you know, the law, it's, it, it means curriculum vitae, kind of like your resume. And I can help you do that. Okay. Basically, you're going to list things like you took this class, you're certified, whatever experience you have, whether it's restoration, fabrication, installation, or whatever, and put it all into a, a CV. And what I'll do... I don't know if I have a copy in here or not, but I'll, I'll actually email you my copy, my CV, and you can see it has how it's outlined. What are you saying? CV? CV, Curriculum Vitae. 
It's a legal term, which okay. basically means your resume, your experience. And so an attorney will ask you, what's your CV? So the first thing they'll ask you when you get into a deposition is they'll, they'll spend an hour, a good hour, in most of the cases, trying to tear you apart. And it's nothing personal. It's just that's what they're doing. They want to prove you're not an expert. Okay? And you just have to show them I am an expert. Okay? This is what I do. I use the word expert a lot. And you notice I don't say expert witness a lot. And the reason being is it's frowned upon. Because expert witness means a hired gun. Okay? I hired you. This is all you do for a living? Is you go into court of law? So you make a living. Uh, aren't they paying you to tell to tell me this? So no, you're either an expert or you're a consultant. Okay, you want to try to avoid the word expert witness as much as you possibly can. Um, not that it's really bad, but a good attorney will will take that and twist it and make it sound like you're a hired gun. And I'm a very ethical person. There, are, I've had calls from attorneys that have said, you know, here's the case. So what do you think? And I'm saying, I think you don't have a case. I don't want to be your expert. You know, I, I can't go into a court of law or a deposition and lie. Okay, it's just it's not in my morals. It's not in my ethics to be able to do that. Um, I have taken cases that were borderline. The nice thing about what we do is we're technical people. Okay, that's all we have to do. There are different types of experts. There are what you call the teacher. That's the one where you're, and that's what you're doing as an expert. You're actually teaching the attorney, if it goes to trial, the judge, if it's a jury trial, the jury, about what you know. You know, a good example, I had a case in South Florida many years ago where there was an efflorescence case. Okay, if a hurricane came through, travertine floor, there was a bunch of efflorescence. Well, I had to explain to the jury what efflorescence was. Well, I could be a scientific expert and I could sit there and say, well, efflorescence is the, uh, is the uh, distribution of soluble salts on the surface of, you know, and totally blow them away as far as technical. Or I can make it real simple, and that's what I do. I make it real simple. I said, have you ever gone to the swimming in the, in the ocean? Yeah. And when you start drying off, you ever feel that salt that forms on your skin? They'll go, yeah. And I go, that's what efflorescence is. It's that salt that's becoming a solid. It's going from wet to dry. And they go, oh, I understand that. Okay. That's the type of expert I am. But you be a technical expert. I deal a lot with uh, engineers that I call it um, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> if it sounds technical enough, you know, well, a guy must know what he's talking about. Listen to the way he talks. That's not the way to get across to a jury. And you lose them. You know, they're they're nodding off and they're they're sleeping. So you know, uh, but we'll get into some of that. We'll get into you know, uh, testimony, how to do that. But before we can do any of that, we get make sure you're knowledgeable. Okay, we got to make sure you know this particular material. Um, the first being stone and tile quality. As I said a minute ago, there is no such thing as a poor quality stone. Well, wait a minute, Fred. Would I use Negro Marquina in a, if you're familiar with that material or not, would I use Negro Marquina in an um, airport baggage area? No. Does that mean the stone is poor quality? No, it's what it is. Okay, It was made by Mother Nature. Now, what there is poor quality, there is substrate, Installation, the products that are used on it, either post or, or uh, uh, dooring, uh, setting materials, the fabrication of it, uh, post installation materials. I don't know if you guys deal with a lot of the, the new materials, especially slabs, but also tile coming out of China right now. You ever do any of that, the Chinese stuff, Brian? Oh, oh. I mean, some of it is just, you know, horrible. it's horrible. It, it's horrible. You got it from Turkey, too. You got it from yep. a couple of Oh, yeah. 
I just did a project. I actually, I'm going back out there on the 22nd in Salt Lake City. A $90 million library, two years old. They decided to cut the budget after spending $90 million on this stone, and I'll show you photos of this later, and it's all rusting. Chinese granite has a high iron content. Exposed to moisture, especially in some place like Salt Lake City where you have you know, salt in the air, it rusts like crazy. So I had to go in there, develop a method for removing the rust, and I developed a method for encapsulating it so it doesn't rust anymore. And we're doing, yeah, talking about, I'll, I'll talk about that later when I show you the project. It's an eight-story building, uh, and just I've been out there three times. This will be my fourth trip. How much did you make on uh, it? I made six, nine, fifteen thousand dollars. So you talk about cheap. Yeah. Oh, it is. And and, and you got you got to look at it this way. You've got an installation. You made a couple. Of, you made a couple hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah. You talk about you know the money you're saving. I mean, people go, well, you're charging an awful lot of money. Yeah, but look at the money you're saving, people. Okay, we, especially in a project like that. This wasn't a lawsuit, but you know, you're going in there offering your expertise. You're saving them. You know, here's a building that cost ninety million dollars. The stone installation, I think, was five. All pre you know, pre-engineered materials, and, and just you know what it would cost to tear that building apart and put it back together in millions. You know, probably more than five million dollars. And I'm going in there for a measly fifteen grand and saving it. So, you know. One thing I will tell you, not to get off the subject, but one thing I will tell you about your rates and a $200 rate, it took me a very long time to figure this out because I used to give away a lot of my information. And I realized because if you don't charge enough, you're not perceived as being knowing what you're doing. I, yeah, I have a conflict. I have a conflict which I wanted to talk to you about because I have, I have, I have all three buildings. I've right. got fabrication, installation, and a restoration right. company. So a lot of the people, and I'm getting calls from a lot of the attorneys, so I, 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 I don't know how I'll be perceived based on solving a problem yeah. and charging for it, and then I fix the problem. Well, maybe not even fix it. I'm 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 kind of like up in the air. So we got to talk about that. Yeah. Well, I, you know that's a very good that's a very good example because uh, it is called a conflict of interest. However, there's a way around that conflict of interest, and the the way that is is that you stay right from the beginning. You have no interest whatsoever in either selling them stone, installing new stone, fabricating new stone, or restoring that stone. You're coming in as, a, as an expert because you use that to your advantage. You know, you are an expert because you do fabrication, you do restoration, you do installation. So that qualifies you as an expert. Okay, but where the conflict will come in, well, well, Brian, uh, do you intend on uh, telling this individual they need to tear this floor out because you want to sell them new tile? No, I will not do that. Well, I, 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 yeah. I backed off on a case because... I figured I, I I'm sorry, you're not on a I'm not on a case. I I backed off from charging them. Right. To work. Because, because of that. I no, oh. because I want to on the flip side, my, my con my potential contract with these people is much That's a different story then. Then then you're not you know, you're not there charging is no conflict, there's right. no conflict because you're not charging for your services. But if you get into that situation, I've had guys that come in here, you know, a lot of restoration guys, you know, well Fred, you know, you're either an expert or you're a restoration company. You can be both, but you can't be after the same job because that will be seen as a conflict of interest. So it's a very good point. Very, very good point. But in a lot of cases, you're making a lot more money as an expert, and you're not doing. All you're using is this. You know, you're using your using your brain. Um, and you know, things like I had a case in L.A. where I sat in a hotel for three days and never got called to trial because they settled it. But guess what? I got paid. I'm sitting there doing my work, you know, sitting in a hotel room waiting to be called, making my $200 an hour, and never got called to court. 
I just had one in Colorado where I'm sitting at the airport ready to get on the plane and got a call the last minute. We settled. They, they went through jury selection and everything. The second day after jury selection was when I was going to go out there. They said, no, we settled. Don't worry about it. Send me your bill. And of course, you'll get things like retainers. Well, what I was getting to in the point there is that I have never, maybe once, have never had anybody complain about my rates. Oh, that's too much money. You won't. But think about it. Who's paying you? Generally, insurance companies. You know, you, if a client's hiring you for, let's say, a bad installation and you're representing, say, the installer, well, the installer has insurance. Okay, and most of the time, the insurance company is paying you. So you get things like retainers up front because sometimes it can take a very long time to get paid. You know, I've had some clients take three months to get paid, so I'll ask for a retainer up front. And, you know, retainers usually anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000, depending on what it is. Uh, a lot of times I'll ask to have the airfare paid for it. I, <laughs> I had something interesting happen many, many years ago. I had a, a company, not a lawsuit case, but a company in Mississippi in the middle of nowhere big, huge office building. They were a door company. They manufactured doors and windows that they sell to Home Depot and Lowe's and everything. And I got talking to the guy and we were kind of, we had a pretty good relationship and I said, well, how the heck am I going to get there? He said, well, you got to fly into New Orleans and you got to take a car, you got to drive three hours, blah, 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 blah. I said, or you could, you could send the corporate jet if you'd like. Guess what? They sent the corporate jet. I was joking. <laughs> oh yeah, we could do that. I go, really? <laughs> so they picked me up at this little airport here and I I flew up with the pilots, two pilots there, and these, it's kind of a funny story because these guys had me convinced I could afford a Lear. Oh, yeah, you just lease it out, you know. What's the Lear cost now? $10 million or something like that. But it, was, it was a great trip. Yeah, if you've ever flown in a jet like that, it's unbelievable how fast those things fly. It's unbelievable. But anyway, so you've got a lot of quality issues that can occur during the fabrication, during the installation, during the use. A lot of what I see out there when it comes to failures falls into two main categories, installation or maintenance issues. Poor maintenance or it's not installed properly. And you're going to see tons and tons of, of examples here in photographs when it comes to the way these things are installed. And if you guys are restoration contractors, which all you are, I believe, right? You all do restoration. You need to know this, probably more so than anybody else, because when you go in on a floor, and let's say you have a floor that's hollow, and it's got a lot of lippage on it, if you don't know how to inspect that floor to determine why it's hollow or how it's installed, and you start grinding on it, you start cracking tiles, guess who's going to be blamed? You. Okay, and we used to have a saying in the, in the uh, restoration business, is the last person to work on that floor owns that floor. The only thing that happens to it afterwards. So you've got to go in there, and, and even if you never be an expert, even if you never do this inspection work, you need to learn how to inspect it for your own purposes. Okay, to go in and say, okay, Mrs. Jones, okay, Mr. Bank Manager, okay, you know, whoever, you've got a problem here. Here's what you're going to get a lot of calls on. We just had a flood. And now the floor is hollow. The water caused the floor to be hollow. <coughs> Wrong answer. Okay, it does not, flooding does not cause the floor to be hollow. And how do I know that? You have to understand how cement cures. Because what is, what is thing set? What is mud? It's concrete. It's Portland cement. It's hydraulic. What does hydraulic mean? It will set up underwater. The more water it has, Okay, the harder it gets. So it was hollow from the beginning. They were just using that flood as an excuse to get their floor replaced. And insurance companies look at you like, huh? <laughs> yeah, there's no way. There's no way a flood. The only way a flood could cause hollowness on a tile is if it was brand new and it was still setting up, which is never seen that. You know, it, it's rare that that'll happen. So those are the type of things you're going to be looking at. 
you're going to have to refer to industry standards. Now, I want to caution you, and this is where when you write reports, when you write letters, you have to take a whole new tack on how you present them. Because you want to be able to back up everything that you say. I'll give you a, a, another example. I had a case where the whole project was based on the word mud. Now, as an install, you know what mud is. We, we all know. We use that, that terminology constantly. Okay? Is there a definition anywhere? No. It's just a term that installers have used and used for years. So how did I get around that? And this you want to write down. There is a thing called common industry knowledge. And a lot of attorneys will use that. Because of your experience, however many years that is, your education, you know, what you do, okay, common industry practice or common industry knowledge. A good example of that. You all know what a vapor barrier is? Okay, pretty much standard, except in Arizona. What is it? A vapor barrier? Yeah. What's the plastic sheet they put that? Oh, yeah. common industry? No, no, the vapor barrier. Oh, vapor barrier is usually a six mil, eight mil polyethylene type type sheet, bisqueen if you want, that's put on top of the ground before the slab is poured to keep vapor, to keep moisture from coming up into the slab. Except in Arizona. They don't use them in Arizona. Common industry practice in that region in Phoenix not to use them. So that's where you could actually take a standard, okay, and say, well, it doesn't apply here. And if you look at standards like the, John's uh, got a copy here, that design manual there from the MIA, it will say, and I actually have a good example here. A lot of folks consider this design manual the Bible when it comes to stone installation. It's not. And I'll prove it to you. Right there, on the very first page on the cover, it says, this manual contains general guidelines. This is not a standard. Okay, they're guidelines. I wrote a lot of this, so I, I know I have, it is done in a very generic, very open, open, open way. But it's still a reference. Okay, it's still a good reference. Depends on what you also call a standard, uh, ASTM or T uh, Tile Council of North America. ANSI standards, you know, these are right. these are true standards, right? Here. The ANSI book. Right. Okay, that, that's a true standard. Right. Uh, ASTM, we'll talk about that. Well, let's talk about it now. ASTM, the American Society for Testing Materials, is not installation standards or testing testing standards. Right. In other words, if I want to test a tile for slip resistance, there's a given standard for a various types of tests. Actually, there's more than one slip slip test. Compressive strength is another one. You know, flexural strength is another one. Okay, that, that's what that's set up for. The MIA is really not a standard, and I'm going to give you an example of how you fight this, that particular standard in a minute. Uh, the ANSI standards, again, you can take a look at this later, the ANSI standards. TCA, which is the Tile Council of America, that's another good little manual they come out with every year, which shows... Right after you say compressive strength, what was the next one? Uh, flexural strength, compressive strength, uh, flexural strength, um, there's one called modules of rupture. Um, there's um, density, another ASTM standard. And I'll, I'm going to show you or tell you where you would use a lot of these, these standards because they, they come into play a lot of times. You've got the National Terrazzo Mosaic Association because you are going to do inspections on terrazzo. As a matter of fact, we were talking, Stort and I were talking this morning, terrazzo is coming back big time. It's big, big time. It's being used all over the place. Um, and then the National Tile Contractors Association. Those are the industry guidelines. I should change the standard to uh, 
guidelines rather than standards. Okay, let me give you an example of where I fought this particular. A very, very dear friend of mine who is now passed away. Uh, you might have heard, you might know, have heard of Vince Migliori. Yeah. Vince, great guy. He used to, he used to uh, uh, run cars. Yes, yeah. And uh, Vince. I actually had, you know what? I'm sorry. I don't that's right, that's okay. I, I hope you don't mind if no, I. No, not at all. Not at all. This is what makes this. You know, when I had first 18 years ago, a little more. I've been in the business for 30, but 18 years ago, I wanted to start the restoration company. Uh -huh. I called Vince up. I asked him, I said, Can we have lunch? We didn't have lunch. We had. We had I don't know. Anyway, I went up to his office, and the guy was just—I mean, the guy was just so helpful. Yeah. And he just—he he, just—I mean, great guy. Yeah. Great guy. He passed away what five, six years ago, something like that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, Vince and I were against one another in a in a court case, and you know that's going to happen. We why maybe against one of you guys someday, and that's just professional. Okay. But he was a lover of the MIA design. Room. I mean, everything he said, well, in the MIA design manual it says this, in this manual it says this, in this manual it says this. And my attorney takes me out to the office and says, Fred, what, what, do, we, what do we do about this? And I said, well, this is what we're going to do. So I told him. The attorney comes back in and he says, uh, can I ask you uh, how many members of, of this organization there are? And at the time, this was many years ago, there was like 600. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He, he back, backed up. He said, can I ask you how many installers there are in the United States? And at the time, I think Vince said 35, 40,000 installers throughout the United States. Said, okay. And how many members of the MIA are there? And he goes, well, about 600. And of those 600, how many are installers? Let's say 200. So you're telling me that of the 35 to 50,000 installers out there, there are only 200 that have this manual are members? <laughs> Where's the standard? Because they don't know it. Okay. So it, it, you know, that doesn't work all the time. But there are ways, because I don't always agree with what's in here. You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, I, I'm not bashing them, don't get me wrong, they're a great organization, but, you know, they're, they're an association of people who are in the business, so it's like, it's like a doctor testifying against another doctor. It's kind of hard to find those, those type of individuals. So you want to be careful. When you back something up, it's okay to back up a standard like this or a standard like this, but in your mind, you can prove scientifically that it's not the right guideline, then prove it. I have a job in North Carolina I'm involved with right now. It's a lawsuit. The overhang, and now I know Brian's probably familiar with the overhang standards, and the MIA says a 3CM granite countertop cannot go any more than 10 inches on an overhang without support. This particular barbecue grill is 15 inches. Therefore, their experts saying it doesn't follow the MIA guidelines, and I think that's absolutely true. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to call the MIA, and I want you to, for them to provide you the engineering calculations they came up with to determine that that was 10 inches. They don't have it. You know why? Because they sat around in a room, and they said, what do you think it should be, Bob? <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, so I showed them engineering calculations, based on the ASTM flexural strength of granite and determined that you could put 1,000 pounds on that countertop at 15 inches and it wouldn't will break. I mean, scientific fact versus a guideline. So if you can find that, and today with the internet, you can find anything. I mean, you can find it. I, I found lost relatives. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, so you know, you can, you can find anything you want on, on the internet. So 
the reason I'm spending a lot of time here is that you need to use these. It makes you more credible understanding them. But if there's a conflict, and you, for, like that example I just gave you, use it. You know, use science. You know, use common sense. You know, people underst understand that. So I would have all these available. Now you also have, in addition to our industry standards, uh, well, let's go over the ASTM standards. Um, this is your absorption, which is, absorption is going to be important when it comes to, um, should I use this particular type of stone in a swimming pool deck? Okay, how absorbent is it? And if it's really, really absorbent, okay, now we got to look at, do we apply sealers to it? Do we apply impregnators to it? Uh, will these impregnators work in an exterior situation? And here's where you get into a lot of issues because you have problems with exterior versus interior stuff. You know what the number one problem I'm seeing right now with exterior stone? Is a lot of the great... Okay, well, there you have it. That's the first 30 minutes of the uh, the actual uh, live broadcast of the, uh, the stone inspection class. And as I said, it's a four-day class. Uh, if you choose to become certified, there will be a test. So what does a class include? The class includes the full PowerPoint presentation, uh, the full lecture, as you've heard the first 30 minutes of. I'm going to also include two bonus lectures. Uh, one is on how to become an expert witness, and the other one is going to be on sealers, uh, and that's also discussed in the class itself. Uh, you will get the test. The test is an open book test, and the entire cost is $2,000 for the study at home class. So if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email at, again, fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com, that's G as in George, gmail.com, or give me a call on my cell, which is area code 321-514-6845. Okay, everybody, have a wonderful day.